Welcome to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. I'm your host, Les Shapiro. And I'm your co-host, Vic Lombardi. Now, each episode, we'll bring inspiring interviews with great athletes, celebrities, and the most brilliant minds in medicine on how to beat adversity to win in life. So thanks for spending time with us as we bring you one step closer to becoming your best unstoppable self. We are talking with Missy Franklin, retired swimmer, however, still a world and U.S. record holder in many events and the owner of five Olympic gold medals. Missy now resides in the Denver, Colorado area. And in conjunction, right after we talk to Missy, we'll speak with Dr. Neil Epperson. She is the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Missy, after looking at your background, I see that your folks are both Canadian-born. And your mom, when you became a competitive swimmer, your mom really wanted you to compete for Team Canada instead of Team USA. But you decided Team USA despite the better competition. That tells me that you were unstoppable from a very young age. You wanted that competition, huh? <laughs> Most definitely. And you know what? My, my parents really neither wanted me either or. Um, they were fully supportive of whatever I decided and whatever I chose to do. But like you said, I have dual citizenship. So I absolutely would have been able to go to Canadian trials and compete for the Canadian Olympic team. And um, that came up as an option because, and I don't, I don't mean for this to sound bad because the Canadians have an unbelievable team, but it's just not quite as competitive as it is here in the United States, because as you guys know, we truly have the most dominant swim team in the world and have had that for the past 30 years. So uh, the, the competition here is definitely very fierce, but just being born here, growing up here, I, I truly felt that if I was going to be an Olympian, I wanted to be an Olympian for the USA. That was really the only way that it was going to mean and have that same amount of value to me as if it was for the country that I grew up in and, and loved with my whole heart. Hey, Missy, your laughter, your smile, it's, it's been infectious for years. And the one question I get all the time is, is that real? Is she always that happy? Is she always, is she always smiling? So I'll ask you right off. I mean, when are you not smiling? <laughs> you know what? Honestly, guys, I was actually probably one of the things that I, I had to really learn how to deal with at such a young age was people thinking that I was fake. And that I was just putting on a show and the comments that I would get from, from spectators or just, you know, comments on social about people who, who really did believe that I was just putting on an act and that it, w it was all for show and, and feeling so hurt reading those comments, you know, just, it, it was so mind blowing for me because this is truly who I am. It's all I've ever been. I'm just, I always feel like I could just bubble over with excitement and joy and, and happiness. And it means so much that you guys say that because I think, you know, the whole point of being positive and, and spreading that, that joy is exactly that is to give it to other people. And I always have just been such a naturally happy person that the only thing I've really wanted to do with that is make others happy too. Yet underneath that bubbly personality, Missy, 
you had killer in you. I mean, you're like the smiling <laughs> assassin in the pool. So where did that competitiveness come from? And, and Vic and I both know Amy Van Dyken very, very well. And, and Amy had that killer in her to the point where during the Olympics on international TV, she spit at the swimmer in the lane next to her. I'm sure you've seen that video. Yeah. So where did your competitiveness come from? You're smiling, but you're killing at the same time. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I, I really think that, that my competitiveness is quite different because it is very focused on just myself. Um, I only ever really wanted to be better than I had ever been. It, it wasn't even necessarily about beating the person next to me. It, it was using them in a way to help me to be that best person of myself so that I could get my hand on the wall and go a time that was faster than I had ever been. And always fighting to make sure that I was being, you know, fully living up to what I was capable of doing, that I, I really wasn't concerned about beating a specific person or even beating a specific record. It was just me. Like, how could I be better than I had ever been before? What goes through your mind when you're swimming? I mean, what's in your brain? What are you processing? You know, that's my favorite part about racing, you guys, is is nothing. I mean, truly, we we train so hard. We spend hours in the pool every day staring at a black line, thinking about every stroke, every breath, every turn, every kick. And we do that. So when we get up behind the block, we can just go. We can just put ourselves on autopilot and trust in all the work that we've put in, in the race plan that we have in place, so that when I when I take off a block, oh my gosh, my mind just goes blank. It's just, I truly do. It's like I just am able to do what I love and I don't have to think about anything else. And I think that's why I always loved racing so much is it was just so instinctive for me. When did you know you could do it at such a high level? At what point? Was there an epiphany? I mean, you've got 27 world medals in, in, in competition. You've got five Olympic gold. You've got a bronze. When did you know you were capable of doing something like that? I think I always dreamt that I would be, and that's where it all starts, right? And that happens so early. I think I was five years old when I drew my first picture of me on top of an Olympic podium with a gold medal. But I think when it really started to dawn on me, like this is this is actually something that you can do was Olympic trials in 2008. I was the youngest person that had qualified in three events. I was 13 years old and I was on the same pool deck as Michael Phelps and Natalie Coughlin. And I just couldn't believe that I was at the same meet as literally the greatest caliber swimmers that have, have ever lived. And so going to that meet, I just learned so much and it really gave me the confidence to come away from that and say, I can do this. Like I, I am right there. I am warming up next to them. I'm warming down next to them. I'm swimming the same races, you know, several heats in advance at this point. <laughs> but like I'm here. I, I can do this. And that was really when I, I looked at my parents uh, from the back seat of the car and we were driving home from Omaha in two thousand eight and I said, four years from now it's going to be 2012. I'm going to be 17 years old and I want a shot. Like I didn't have a shot this time. I knew that I'm just 13. This was just fun and an amazing learning experience, but I got to see firsthand 
what it looks like to make an Olympic team. I got to see that emotion, that joy, just every piece of what I had been dreaming of, I saw it. And so I left that meet and I was like, whatever it takes for the next four years, I'm going to put myself in a position. So when I come back here, I have a chance at feeling like that. Well, you went on to London in 2012 and you became the darling of America Olympic Games. You went on to win 27 medals in world events, records all over the place, high school, NCAA. Two times swimmer of the year. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the resume is chock full. <laughs> I want to ask you this question because a lot of people wondered it then. And I thought, oh, you know, this is Missy's call. I know exactly why she's doing it. When you made the call to go to college and compete collegiately at Cal rather than cash in a lot of people would figure, hey, you might as well cash in. There's money to be made out there. Why did you make that decision? Yeah, there there were so many, so many different thought processes that went went into that. But for me, my favorite part about swimming has always been the team. And I think that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their head around because a lot of people view swimming as an individual sport. And I truly don't believe that. Um, I, I understand that. And of course, when we get out there for our races, we are, you know, fighting on our own and, and touching the wall and, and fighting for our place. But when it comes to the day to day, when it comes to training as much and as hard as we do, if you ask any swimmer if they could do that alone, there's no way. I mean, we are so fortunate that we have the family and the support system that we have around us every single day and practice to make it fun, to push us, to make us better, to be there from day in, day out through the hardest training. And, and I don't think any swimmer would disagree that no one gets to where they want to be alone. We just have that team behind us and it makes it more meaningful when you get to share it with people. And that's what I wanted from college. I wanted to be a part of a team where we were all fighting towards the same goal. And I tell you guys to this day, there's, there's nothing like it. And there's nothing that I will ever experience like that again, where I have 30 young women in a pool and we are all equally as dedicated and equally training and fighting as hard as possible for one goal. And we're all fighting for that one goal together. And that's that NC2A championship. And, and that feeling when we won sophomore year is truly, I mean, you can't even compare it to winning a gold medal because it's so different, but doing that together is honestly, like I said, I think it just gives it this, this meaning that is really indescribable. So, Missy, you win the NCAA championship at Cal Berkeley, and you do what you do at the 2012 Olympics. You win five medals, including four gold and one bronze. And then as you're preparing for the 2016 Olympics in Rio, you start experiencing shoulder pain. And you've been very open about this, so I hope you don't mind me asking again. No, never. But you experience the shoulder pain. And I'm wondering if the shoulder pain led to the depression, the anxiety, the insomnia that you started experiencing, or were they manifesting themselves in different ways for different reasons? No, you know, I think I think they were manifesting in different ways for different reasons. And those really started before um, my shoulder pain. I actually had an injury occur in April of 2016, and I think... I had been going through 
those feelings of depression and anxiety, not fully understanding what was happening and what they were. Because as you know, we talked about the very beginning of this call, right? I've always been so happy and positive, And that was always something that just came so easy that all of a sudden I'm getting these feelings and these thoughts that I have never experienced before. And I'm kind of just thinking in my head, oh, you know, maybe it's just you're feeling a little bit of pressure. You know, there's a lot of you know, expectation going into this. And then the shoulder injury happened. And at that point, there's nothing I can do, right? Olympic trials are three months out. I can't get surgery. I just, I have to push through it. So for me, the the shoulder injury was more so just do your best with what you have, like whatever you can just get through this. Whereas, you know, the mental aspect as things started to get closer to trials, I really started to realize what was happening and how kind of that year of training and that pressure and those expectations and that isolation really started to weigh on me. What do you mean by isolation? Because you were you were at school, you were surrounded by students, you were with your team when you were training. What do you mean by isolation? Yeah, so actually I wasn't. Um, so for 2016, I made the decision to come back to Colorado and train with my club coach um, and live with my parents again. So I was back to training with a, a club team um, with just high school swimmers. We had an elite group of four or five people, um, and that group was very special. But as you said, I'm coming off of a college experience where I'm used to training with 30 of my best friends every single day. And now my entire atmosphere has changed. I have left all of that, and that is still going on without me. And I'm now at home because I truly believe that that was going to be best for me training wise, perhaps not putting as much emphasis as I should have on what that would do to me emotionally and mentally. I was living literally in my parents' basement. Um, All my friends were away at school. Um, I didn't have anyone here. And so literally all I thought about day in and day out was just swimming. Um, every bad practice, I would come home and I would ruminate on it on all the mistakes I made all day long. And it's just, it it was never good enough. Like anything that I did, I just put myself under so much pressure. And all I would have to do after that was just sit with myself and those feelings. And so that's kind of that isolation that I was feeling and that I went from such an incredible team atmosphere to, you know, it really just being me. You know, interestingly enough, Missy, I've battled anxiety my entire adult life. And isn't it amazing when you open up about battles, how the therapeutic nature uh, sets in, like in pro sports, so many, so many professional athletes now are talking openly about depression. It's no longer a taboo subject. When did it hit you? When did you say, I I, got to be honest about this. I have to tell people about this. Yeah. So I think for me, I want to say it was probably either May or June of 2016. Um, so again, right before Rio, where I was like, I, I actually vividly remember it. I sat down with my uh, coach, Todd Schmitz, and my strength and conditioning coach, Lauren Landau, um, who's now the strength and conditioning coach for the Denver Broncos. But I, I sat down with them and I was, we were outside, we were in the grass and I just started sobbing and I just looked at them and I was like I am not okay and that was the first time I had actually like spoken those words out loud um and so they were unbelievable both of them were like 
dads to me. Um, so they, we immediately got in contact with a sports psychologist um, and I worked with him all the way through Rio. And at that point we were, again, just trying to manage because we had let things go to a point where it's not like I was going to be free from these feelings before Rio came. It was just a matter of, okay, what can we do and how can we make the most of, of what situation we're in right now? Yeah, Rio seems like it was a real battle for you. It was. I mean, after coming off 2012, yeah, the expectations were high. You're you're not just America's sweetheart. You're the world's sweetheart in the swimming pool. And I I can't imagine what you were going through fighting through that. How did you you not only get through it, but yet you ended up winning another gold on on a relay team? Yeah, you know what? Um, I think it's crazy there. So they're playing the Olympics this week on NBC and they were playing a bit of swimming last night from Rio. And I, I, I started crying last night, like just watching it. Like there's still so many emotions that are associated with that. And I think, you know, the way that I chose to approach that situation and what was happening was, listen, everything in my life up to this point has gone the way that I wanted it to this is not going to go the way that I want it to, which means for the first time, I'm going to have an opportunity to actually be the person I've always said I was going to be when things don't go my way. I want to be the same person, have that same sportsmanship, that same respect, whether I'm winning, getting a gold medal and breaking a world record or whether I'm not even making an A final at the Olympic Games. That does not change the person that I am. And so that is really how I got through those days. I, again, kind of challenged myself and had that competitive nature with, listen, you've always said this is the kind of person and athlete you were going to be. Let's see it. I, I remember your crazy schedule that you had in high school. Where you'd wake up before the sun came up. You'd be practicing. You'd be doing schoolwork. I mean, you are not the common student, okay? And, and let me ask you this now. When you look back at it, you suffer or suffered from insomnia. Mm-hmm. Is that born out of of that schedule? What When you look back at it, how did you become an insomnia? My, my son suffers from insomnia, and we always want How does that happen? Yeah, you know, I don't think it was the schedule. I think for me, it was more of a symptom of everything else I was experiencing, particularly in that year. Um, I think just with the depression and the anxiety and all of the pressure and expectation, um, I think that was really, you know, nighttime was just when those thoughts would creep in. Um, That was kind of the time where it was so quiet. And Mm -hmm. that was just when those those little things would, would come into my head and I couldn't get them to turn off because as soon as I, you know, started the healing process and going to therapy and, um, you know, had my surgeries and all of that, like that whole healing process, that all alleviated, right? The insomnia, the anxiety, the depression. And I think a big thing for me was realizing that it's not, it's not like it's something, and I think this goes for mental health for everyone. It's not something that, you get over and never have to worry about again. Like it's something that you always need to be aware of because life is always going to be an unknown. You know, there's always going to be a challenge. There's always going to be something that you're not expecting that comes up. So I think that was really big for me because it made me feel like I don't need to be cured of anything. 
I'm just learning how to deal with things better. And I have a game plan and I have better self-awareness so that if something happens and these feelings start to come back, I don't have to be afraid of them. I don't need to be scared of them because that only makes them worse. I know that they're there. They're not good or bad. That's just how I'm feeling. And I have ways to handle and ways to cope with them. So there's no silver bullet. There's no magic pill. This is a process. It's having the tools. Yep, exactly. All right, Missy, you sound really happy now, and we're glad to hear that. (laughs) You're 24 years old. You retired at 23 from competitive swimming, but there's a whole lot more life to live. So what's in store for Missy Franklin and her new husband? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Well, I was so fortunate in that, of course, retiring due to injury is never anything that any athlete hopes for. Um, But, you know, just trusting that I was making the decision and knowing that two more surgeries and the recovery time just wasn't going to put me where I needed to be in order to have a successful third Olympics. But I was so fortunate in that it really lines up with the happiest time of my life. And that was meeting my husband and getting engaged and getting married. And we just moved back to Colorado in December. And so we are so happy just to be back home. And number one thing that we are dedicating our lives to is is giving back um, to the people that have given us so much, to the sport that has given us so much. Um, so we're both still very heavily involved in the swimming world. And we were given so many opportunities. We had so many unbelievable mentors. And after everything that I went through, I firmly believe that we go through what we go through in life so then we can help others who are going through a similar situation. And we can be that ear that not only listens, but genuinely understands what they're feeling and what they're going through. And so to, to give back in that way, I think is really our, our absolute number one priority. And then not right now, but in a little while, being a mom has always been my absolute number one life goal, no matter what. And now that I'm married to the love of my life and someone that is going to be the best father of all time, we are so excited to start our own family. Missy, let's end with this question. Do you once again feel unstoppable? I do. I do. Um, I think for a while, um, I felt for the first really majority of my life, I felt incredibly unstoppable. And then for several years, I felt very, very stoppable. And now I am at a point where I've done the work and I truly feel that for the rest of my life, I'm in control. I'm in that seat and I know that this is my life and I get to choose what direction it goes in, who I want to spend my time with, where I want to give back. And I feel completely in control and completely unstoppable. Proud of you, young lady. Very proud. Thank you. <laughs> Missy, so, so nice to hear it. So, so nice to hear it in your voice. Uh, and we really appreciate you giving us the time today. Of course, you guys. Thank you so much for having me on. It means so much. Okay, time to take a quick break. When we come back, Dr. Neil Epperson. We Are Unstoppable is sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. You know, Les, when I got hit with prostate cancer, it's the first place I turned to because I know the Anschutz Campus, they really delve into breakthrough technology. If there's something new on the horizon, I know they've got it. And I was hit with lung cancer. 
And that's where I get treated as well, at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. They've got me up and running. They've made me unstoppable. Less, they've made us unstoppable. And they're located right here in the heart of the Rocky Mountain region. Welcome back to We Are Unstoppable. And we're joined by Dr. Neil Epperson. She is the Robert Friedman Endowed Professor and Chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Welcome, Dr. Epperson. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, before we get into the part of the podcast we just did with Missy Franklin, if you will, please give me an overview of what you do and the school's psychiatry department. Um, It's my pleasure. Uh, First of all, it's great to be here today. Uh, The Department of Psychiatry at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus is an incredible place. Um, The faculty there, um, the staff, um, all of the folks that are working in the department are mission-driven to improve the mental health landscape of the state of Colorado, actually the greater Rocky Mountain region. Uh, We not only provide state-of-the-art clinical care for general psychiatric issues, mental health issues, and substance abuse issues, but we have a number of faculty that are focused on specific areas that really have expertise that are unique in this country. Uh, focus on refugee mental health, stress and trauma, women's mental health. Um, I could keep going on. Our child and adolescent division is absolutely outstanding. Our substance abuse and treatment division is is just, um, I think, par none. And then I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the amazing research that is going on, because it's not only important to provide evidence-based treatments for mental health concerns. It is also important to understand the causes of mental illness and how by using that knowledge, we can improve the treatment that we provide. So we have a number of folks, basic scientists, clinical scientists, that are all trying to study the roots of mental illness and what we can do to not only treat patients, but prevent these disorders from happening. All right. I want to get back to how important this is to the Anschutz Medical Campus in, in, in just a minute. First, I want to talk about what we just heard from Missy Franklin, the, the Olympic gold medalist. Um, she was very candid with us. She described her battles with depression and anxiety uh, throughout her life and her career as a swimmer. So, so tell me, do, do we not pay enough attention, not only with athletes, but, but with everyone when it comes to being treated for any mental health problems? Um, Absolutely, we do not. In our society, unfortunately, there is still a stigma associated with mental health concerns, Um, you know, particularly with professional athletes and anyone that's working at the top of their scope or top of their game, so to speak. There's this pressure to go, 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 um, to be the absolute best, to not show any weakness whatsoever. And the problem is, is that as long as we think about mental illness as quote unquote a weakness, um, our humanity as a weakness, uh, then we're going to continue to stigmatize um, behavioral health concerns. And I think if we were to talk to athletes such as um, what Missy was suggesting at the end of her interview, really trying to help athletes understand that it is important to really work hard, it's important to strive to be the best, but to recognize when things are not going as well as you might like them to. Well, yeah, let's let's talk about that. Warning signs, okay? So Missy is is in her late teens, early 20s. She's a world-class athlete. Um, the world is her oyster, really. Yet she falls into this depression and anxiety and insomnia and everything that follows. Mm-hmm. 
she had no clue what was going on with her. What are the warning signs? What, what should people be looking for to be aware that maybe this is starting to happen to me? Well, I think that's a really good point. And there was something that she said in her interview that really struck me. And I think it's particularly pertinent to women. And one thing you should understand and your listeners should understand that um, a person's sex, whether they're a male or a female, has a tremendous impact on the kinds of mental health concerns that they need to be concerned about. Of course, men and women can both experience depression and anxiety, but females experience depression and anxiety twice as commonly as men. Men have more problems with things like substance use, impulsive behavior, but when you think about it from a female perspective, she mentioned ruminating and that she had started really, you know, kind of beating herself up, so to speak, about maybe I didn't do, I didn't swim quite as well as I should have. A bad practice, something like that. a bad practice. While she was in isolation. Right. And rumination is a symptom that I think particularly for women, and research has shown this, is particularly potent for women. They, they tend to experience rumination more frequently. And rumination is one of those symptoms, one of those cognitive styles that can predispose somebody to having depression. And it can also be a sign that they're becoming depressed. And so I would really um, point out that particular symptom. I think also the insomnia of not sleeping, of feeling more anxious about her practices. Um, Those are very much key symptoms um, that show that something might not be um, up to par. There's a difference between rumination and one's focus on, okay, well, I didn't swim quite as fast as I would like to have. Maybe I could improve my stroke. That is just kind of critically reviewing one's performance. When one is like, oh, God, why did I do that? I'm such a lousy swimmer. I mean, I'm not saying she said that to herself, but I'm just fantasizing about what one would criticize oneself about as a pro athlete. Um, When you start really thinking about it in that larger perspective of not being very good or I should have done better um, and being negative, that definitely is a warning sign. Dr. Upperson, is this pandemic, the coronavirus and all that comes with it, is this producing a different kind of stress for people? Um, absolutely, less. It's, um, it's unique. I mean, if you think about it, we as a human species are not experienced with this kind of stress. Um, it is, it's been since 1918, 1920, when we had the Spanish flu, and that was clearly a pandemic that um, killed many people across the globe and here in the United States. Um, So we are psychologically inexperienced because it's been over a hundred years since we've had a pandemic here in this country at this magnitude. Um, So social isolation, because we are a social species, we get a lot of our stress relief from the people that we love um, and being able to have good times in person. Human touch is incredibly important. So folks that are um, isolated and can't get the human touch that we so crave and helps us dampen our stress response. Again, that's a unique aspect of social isolation that has been associated with this pandemic. Then there's the chronic 
unremitting um, and unpredictable nature to this stress. And we know from animal studies that that is the worst kind of stress. Unpredictable, we as humans, mammals hate unpredictable stress. Uh, if we can predict the stress, we can prepare for it. But when it's unpredictable, uncertain, how long is this going to last? When am I actually going to be able to go out and hug somebody and be with my friends again? That unpredictable nature um, of this stress uh, increases our stress hormones and can have an even more negative effect on our mental health. Dr. Epperson, you yourself, you are on a personal mission here. Can you explain that to all of us? Absolutely. From, from my earliest days um, as a resident in training at Yale University, Department of Psychiatry, I, I just knew that, again, that we can't have health without mental health. And, and I've I really chose to use my career and all the decisions I think I've made over the past 20 odd years has been to really promote the centrality of the brain with respect to all areas of health. And one of the issues about being a chair of a department is that you can be, you have a bigger mouthpiece. It's like you have a megaphone to your colleagues in other areas of medicine, as well as to the community and society at large to really get that mission across, again, that the brain is central to all other areas of health. And um, so that's what I'm doing here as a chair of a department. As long as I have you here, um, can I ask you a question about myself? Sure, of course. Okay. I have great anxiety right now because I'm having trouble figuring out how to do all these video chats. Can you help me with that? (laughs) You're doing just fine. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And, and, and Dr. Epperson, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. You want more Unstoppable Stories? Subscribe to our podcast wherever you find and listen to podcasts. You can even ask your smart speaker to play We Are Unstoppable Podcasts. And you can visit us at our website, unstoppablepodcasts.com, for more episodes and ways to subscribe. That's unstoppablepodcasts.com. Subscribe today.